This is an ABC podcast. The judgment in the High Court confirms we did the right thing. We did the right thing in stopping Clive Palmer taking this state for $30 million. What Palmer was trying to argue was that effectively Parliament is behaving like a court in making a decision about his entitlement to legal remedies and that's an impermissible breach of the separation of powers. Australia's highest court didn't see it Clive Palmer's way and has quashed the mining magnate and politician's bid to sue the West Australian government for $30 billion. That's coming up. Hi, Damien Carrick here. Welcome to The Law Report. First, a long-running unfair dismissal case which sparked intense debate around questions of academic freedom is finally over. Peter Ridd's three-year legal battle for academic freedom came to an end today. The comments he made criticising the science linking climate change and coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef. I just don't think they're objective about the the science they do. It seems free speech is only free when it's something of which the left approves. Queensland's Professor Peter Ridd has lost his High Court appeal against his sacking by James Cook University. A highly controversial figure... The marine physicist is critical of science linking climate change and polluted water to coral bleaching on the Great Barrier Reef. Melbourne University Professor Adrienne Stone is a constitutional law expert with a focus on freedom of speech and academic freedom. Adrienne Stone says in 2018, Peter Reid was effectively dismissed after being disciplined repeatedly by his employer over comments he made about the research of colleagues and of associated entities. It was quite a complex series of events, but it began in 2016 when Peter Reid made some statements in a long email to a journalist in which he was extremely critical of some of his colleagues at James Cook University, particularly those who were working at a centre of excellence in coral reef studies. And he made very critical comments about them and their understanding of the science. And those were given to a journalist and were the subject later of a complaint against him. So essentially, he sent an email to a News Limited journalist discrediting studies uh, by the Centre of Excellence for Coral Reef Studies and suggesting a line of questioning that that would reveal this. And for that email and for that interaction with the journalist, that was discovered and he was given a, a formal censure and a direction to stop. But there was another subsequent set of events that caused him to get into hot water. What are they? Professor Reid continued to make public statements that were critical of his colleagues in a similar way. And following that censure, he, in fact, made several public statements, including appearing on the television show on Sky News, uh, Jones and Co with Alan Jones and Peter Credlin, in which he was very critical of parts of the university, um, specifically the Centre of Excellence in Coral Reef Studies, and also a university partner, which was the Great uh, Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. During this period, there was another set of events that ultimately were grounds for termination. When disciplinary proceedings were 
commenced against Professor Reid. He was required in accordance with the university's code of conduct to keep them confidential. And he didn't do so. He did speak publicly about them. He was very critical of the university for taking this action against him. And I believe he also did some fundraising around uh, assisting him with his case against the university, all of which involved revealing information that he had been required to keep confidential. Ultimately, he is dismissed. He challenges this decision. And essentially, he's relying on the enterprise agreement, which he says contains a protection of academic freedom. And James Cook University instead relies on the code of conduct and says he's breached uh, many parts of that code of conduct. Now, he initially wins his case in the Federal Circuit Court. The judge awards him $1,200,000 in compensation. This is overturned and the High Court has dismissed Rid's appeal, saying that the sacking is in fact lawful. What does this tell us about the freedom of expression for academics? It seems that a university has been permitted to dismiss an academic really fundamentally because of what was a disagreement about science. And that you would not expect to see in a university system which is seriously committed to academic freedom. Disputes about science to be resolved by scientists having scientific arguments and there are time-honoured ways in science to figure out who's right and who's wrong. And so I have to say when this case first went through the full federal court and the termination was upheld, I was really quite disappointed for the fate of academic freedom. But the High Court's decision is actually quite a lot more complicated because although the High Court upheld James Cook University's decision to terminate Peter Reid, they also made it absolutely clear that the initial action against him should never have been taken. In other words, the judges held that the protection in the enterprise agreement for intellectual freedom included the traditional, well-known, long-established principles of academic freedom that allow academics to engage in quite robust argument with each other about research and that they can do so even when it might look like they're being disrespectful or discourteous to their colleagues. So the High Court was absolutely clear that the enterprise bargaining agreement protected that freedom and also that it, in a sense, overrode the code of conduct. So the requirement in the code of conduct that you treat people with respect and courtesy couldn't be applied to academic debate because of the special nature of academic debate. So on that core finding, in fact, the High Court's decision is a really very significant defence of core principles of academic freedom. It's a pyrrhic victory, isn't it? Because yes, the High Court is saying, sure, the enterprise agreement protects academic freedom and that's paramount, but he nevertheless breached the code of conduct because of the breach of confidentiality he had in disclosing these disciplinary processes which were in train against him. He was interfering with these disciplinary processes. He was breaching confidentiality and he was denigrating his um, colleagues. So at the end of the day, the sacking is upheld. From Professor Ridd's perspective, the outcome is really very, very disappointing. Quite disastrous, really, because Although the High Court found that this action had never been taken in the first place, in the end it also accepted that Professor Reid's conduct 
in disregarding the confidentiality obligations justified his termination. But there is a broader perspective going forward in which I think we can take some reassurance, and that is that where an enterprise agreement contains protection for intellectual freedom, and most of them governing Australian academics do, we can expect in the future that the courts will interpret that in a way that gives very significant protection to the rights of academics to debate academic ideas and to do so robustly. And importantly, codes of conduct can't be used to impose standards of civility that are not appropriate to academic discourse. Going forward, this is an important precedent for the academic sector, but I do understand that it has provided Professor Reid himself with very little comfort. Adrienne Stone, you're a legal academic and you focus on freedom of speech. What would you say to your colleagues in the sciences who might argue, look, the planet's dying, the Great Barrier Reef is in dire straits, and we have a scientific outlier here who's throwing mud at his colleagues in the scientific mainstream, uh, saying they cannot be trusted. The, the view would be that this is not just debating the science, but white-anting, undermining, debasing, and, and this is serious. First of all, I would say I really do understand why you might be passionate about your area of research and I really can understand that this kind of academic interaction could be extremely frustrating. But we have to remember that we are academics and academic freedom is a demanding value. It really requires us to be very tolerant of academics who we think are not just wrong but sort of really fundamentally misguided. The reason that we are required to be tolerant of them is because academic inquiry, free academic inquiry, places a very, very high value on the protection of unorthodox ideas. And allowing a code of civility to be applied in these circumstances displaces academic methods with what are really human resources standards. If you think Peter Ridd is wrong, then we have ways of showing that, ways of working within science to make those points rather than to co-opt a code of conduct to do it. And I would make this final point. It's dangerous to do so because it might be applied in the first instance to an academic you would disagree with, but another instance we might find those codes of conduct that are applied to academics who are unorthodox, unpopular, but making really important points. In this same space, Adrienne Stone, on the 31st of August, there was a decision in the federal court involving the sacking of an academic, a political scientist, Tim Anderson. He is somebody with extraordinary history. Who is he? He is an academic and activist at the University of Sydney, but I think many people listening to this will remember that he was he was convicted for an alleged conspiracy related to the bombing at the Sydney Hilton Hotel in 1978, and he went to prison. And there was a, a very high-profile campaign to quash his conviction, which was ultimately successful in ni- about 1991, I think. And after that, I think he became active in a number of political causes and he's worked as an academic at the University of Sydney. As an academic, I think it's fair to describe him as, I think, at the very uh, radical left-wing end of the academia and he's especially known for his criticism of Israel. He's also supportive of the Assad regime and also the regime of North Korea. That is, I think, indicative of where his views are on the political spectrum. Why was he sacked? 
There were, again, quite a long history of conduct, uh, which is related in a lot of detail in the decision. But let me just pull out two bits of it, because I think these are the ones that uh, stand out. One action which the university took to be misconduct was that Tim Anderson posted on his Facebook page a picture of him at a, I think, like an end of term celebration with some of his students. One of his students was wearing a jacket that had on it on a a sort of sewn on badge that I think was in Arabic, but it included anti-Semitic statements such as, I think, death to Israel and other um, statements that were about Jews being evil, something along those lines. And so Tim Anderson put this picture on his Facebook of him with a student with these really quite shocking slogans on his jacket. And then when he was asked to take them down, he refused to do so. So that was one thing that he did. Another thing that he did was that in the course of giving a seminar, which was about politics in the Middle East, amongst other things, he displayed a PowerPoint presentation that included an image of a Nazi swastika superimposed over the Israeli flag. And again, he then posted that to his Facebook page and refused to take it down. These infographics, I think, were, were containing figures of the casualties or deaths in the, in the Gaza conflict and under or above the figures he had, the I think, the Palestinian flag and the Israeli flag with the, the swastika superimposed on it. Yes, so it was part of a criticism of Israel in relation to its actions in Gaza. So he gets sacked and the full federal court recently ruled that his academic freedom is protected by this enterprise agreement, similar to the one which protected Peter Reid in his action against uh, James Cook University. What was the gist or what was the heart of that recent decision in the full federal court? Again, I thought this decision was a really heartening one for academic freedom because it had come from an appeal from a a decision in a lower court and the initial decision had it that the protection of intellectual freedom in the enterprise bargaining agreement at Sydney University was of no legal effect. It was a sort of hortatory statement, an an aspirational statement of ideals, but couldn't actually be enforced. And the full federal court in the Anderson case on the 31st of August said, no, that's not how we're going to interpret the enterprise agreement. The protection given to intellectual freedom is a protection of academic freedom. And that is a real principle with well understood content that's legally enforceable. So they made a very key legal move. And I think um, all academics and anyone who cares about academic freedom should be really happy to see that the courts understand that those clauses in enterprise bargaining agreements are legally enforceable. The difficulty in the Tim Anderson case, I think, is not in determining the nature of the legal obligations. It's about how do you characterise his conduct. I think it's fairly easy to see that it's not, it's not easily characterised like Peter Ridd's was as simply a discussion about research and science, even if Peter Ridd's conduct involved sort of quite personal unpleasant statements about his colleagues. It was a scientific dispute about science. But you can see, I think, that Tim Anderson's conduct gets much closer to the line and it may well involve hate speech against Jews. I think that there are some complexities in reaching that conclusion, but I think that's the issue. And I think everyone agrees that academic freedom doesn't cover hate speech. So the full federal court has sent it back to the court below to consider again the nature of his conduct and to consider whether it's properly characterised as an exercise of intellectual freedom or not. 
Professor Adrienne Stone, a constitutional law expert and also co-author of a recent book, Open Minds, Academic Freedom and Freedom of Speech. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You're listening to The Law Report on ABC Radio National with Damien Carrick. Available anywhere, anytime via the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Last week in the High Court, Queensland businessman and politician Clive Palmer lost his bid to overturn West Australian legislation that was specifically designed to prevent him from suing the state government for up to $30 billion. Here's the reaction from WA Premier Mark McGowan. The judgment in the High Court confirms we did the right thing. We did the right thing in stopping Clive Palmer taking this state for $30 billion. That would have been $12,000 each for every man, woman and child in this state. Professor Katie Barnett is an expert in legal remedies at the University of Melbourne Law School. Katie Barnett, what was this dispute about? It's a fascinating case. Basically, the Western Australian government was trying to prevent Palmer from being able to sue it for breaching an agreement that the government had made back in 2001. And that agreement in 2001 had been in relation to mining opportunities in the Pilbara. Now, what Palmer was claiming was that the Western Australian government had breached that agreement when it refused to let him sell off his interest to a Chinese company and that he'd suffered a loss of opportunity of around $30 billion. Yeah, incidentally, $30 billion is sort of the annual state budget, so that gives you a sense of the scale of this claim. What did the state government do in response? First, the parties went into arbitration, and the arbitral agreements were actually largely favourable to Palmer, whereupon in August last year, the Parliament passed legislation which among other things, actually deprived Palmer of his right to damages for this claim. This legislation rushed through Parliament was completely designed to cut Palmer off at the knees with this $30 billion claim. Yes. Basically, the way in which the state government justified it was to stop Palmer from bankrupting the state effectively. So they said, we have to do this, otherwise um, we're going to be put under a terrible financial burden. How common is it for there to be legislation to prevent individuals from taking action against government? It's actually pretty rare. So it was a very unusual kind of legislation, which explains how it ended up getting up to the High Court like this. Earlier this year in June, Clive Palmer, representing himself and also lawyers for the mineralogy, uh, which is the company involved, they both went to the High Court and they argued before the High Court and it was a somewhat unusually emotional um, hearing. What happened there? Firstly, the hearing lasted much longer than High Court hearings usually do. It lasted a couple of days. But secondly, Palmer apparently burst into tears in front of the court when he described how the legislation had specifically targeted him and his companies. The High Court judges were apparently unmoved. 
He described the legislation as, quote, repugnant to justice and, quote, an abomination masquerading as a law. Clive Palmer also, he he appeals to, to some pretty grand principles and some grand people, doesn't he? Palmer actually said that his rights were being infringed and quoted Martin Luther King, but he didn't go on to talk about the next bit about racial discrimination and so forth. I'm guessing that the High Court weren't that impressed by this attempt to draw equivalence between his rights and... um, the rights of Martin Luther King. Uh, the black American civil rights uh, leader of the 1960s. Exactly. So not equivalent in the High Court size. Katie Barnett, can we walk through the various arguments? Um, Clive Palmer had, in his address to the High Court, talked about being discriminated against as a Queenslander by this WA legislation and also talked about the legislation undermining the rule of law. What did the High Court have to say about those two arguments? The High Court basically dismissed those two arguments pretty quickly. Firstly, they said there was no evidence of discrimination whatsoever. Whether Palmer was a Western Australian resident or a Queensland resident was irrelevant to any of this. So there was no discrimination here. And then secondly, they said that if he was going to make a rule of law argument, he had to point to a specific part of constitutional text which had been contravened. He wasn't allowed to just shoehorn in a definition of rule of law that suited him and say it was kind of implied in the constitution. So they took quite a textual approach. As opposed to the vibe approach which might have been favoured by Palmer. Yes, indeed. So it wasn't all about the vibe, it was about the text. There was also argument put forward by Palmer and Mineralogy that the legislation breached Chapter 3 of the Constitution. Now, this is the the chapter of the Constitution that spells out the role of the judiciary. It's designed to protect the separation of powers of the legislature, the, the executive and the judiciary, make sure they don't step on each other's toes. What was that argument and, and why was that dismissed? Basically, what Palmer was trying to argue was that effectively Parliament is behaving like a court. In making a decision about his entitlement to legal remedies, it's being like a court and that's an impermissible breach of the separation of powers. What the High Court said to that was that a statute altering legal rights doesn't mean that the Parliament is exercising judicial power even if there is pending litigation. And just because the outcomes seem harsh doesn't mean that the legislation is constitutionally invalid. Briefly, there were two other arguments, one concerning something called Section 6 of the Australia Act and another concerning Section 118 of the Constitution. What were they, briefly? What they were about is the form that state legislation should take and also whether there's any conflict with other state laws. And the High Court dismissed those arguments too. So they said the Western Australian Parliament was totally entitled to unilaterally amend the contract in the way that it did and that there was no conflict with any other state laws. 
Palmer had, was trying to argue, well, look, we've had these arbitrations going on on the other side of the country and they've been in our favour and we've tried to register them with the Queensland courts. So you can't then put, pull the rug out from underneath us because we've got these registered in another court. And the court said, no, the law applying to the arbitration was that of Western Australian and there is no conflict with other state laws whatsoever, no inconsistency. Palmer's saying, look, you may have won, but you're sending out a message to business generally that you can't trust this government. There are, there are sovereign risks associated with investing in this jurisdiction. Do you think that'll have any traction at all, that argument? It might make people nervous because there was a procedure under the contract for resolving any disputes. The Western Australian government didn't use that. They just unilaterally passed legislation terminating everything. And the High Court says that's fine. But what that means is that now Western Australian governments can just overturn agreements like that unilaterally if they decide that they don't like the terms of the agreement they've signed up to. Well, that speaks really to, from somebody who doesn't know a lot about this, a weird conflation of government approval processes and contracts. It is, Damien, and my understanding is that from Justice Edelman's judgment, and he, of course, is from Western Australia originally, he wanted to highlight the history of how the contract even became part of statute and also some of the history of government agreements being problematic in WA. And of course, it is well known that Western Australia has had massive issues with government contracts with separate issues like WA Inc. and things like that. So previously, back in the 80s. So they created this situation where you have to have contracts go through parliament and that's why they became these contracts and these approval processes became conflated and therefore subject to, to litigation. It's so interesting, Katie Barnett, we need to point out that there is a long and deep history of animosity between the WA state government and Clive Palmer. He unsuccessfully challenged the state's COVID-19 strict border closure last year. That was thrown out by the High Court. I think they found that it was um, a proportional public health measure, didn't they? Yes, they did. That's not to mention the defamation claims that both the Western Australian government and Palmer have made against each other. Clive Palmer and uh, WA Premier Mark McGowan suing each other in defamation. Uh, Clive Palmer kicked it off because he said the Premier described him as, quote, an enemy of the state. And uh, I'm not quite sure how Clive Palmer described Mark McGowan, but um, he's now counter-suing in defamation. And I believe they've said that if his jet comes into Western Australia, he can leave by train. He's not welcome. In the state. Well, indeed, I think the State Attorney-General, John Quigley, um, has sort of said, look, you lost your border closure case. That was a million dollars in legal costs to the state. You've just lost your $30 billion compensation claim. That's another million dollars in legal costs for the state. When the border does open up, if you fly into WA, well, if you fly in on your private jet, we will seize it if you haven't paid the money by then. 
So they're really, really, really not happy. What do you think is the take-home message from this latest High Court decision involving the $30 million compensation for for the stalled mining project? What what do you as as a remedies expert take from this? I do find it somewhat troubling that a legislature can remove someone's entitlement to private law remedies. But the second thing is, I think that the contract they entered into here was really foolish. If you have a contract, you've got to also be able to get out of it. And I think what the High Court has done here is say, look, Western Australia, you can get out of this. Putting aside Palmer's personality, and I think you have to do that. You have to say, it shouldn't matter who he is. Taking away someone's right to legal remedies is a pretty strong action. But on the other hand, it was an incredibly disadvantageous contract. Professor Katie Barnett, expert in in legal remedies at the University of Melbourne, thank you very much for speaking to The Law Report. Great talking to you. Thanks so much, Damien. That's the show for this week. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and also to sound engineer this week, Tim Simons. Don't forget The Law Report is available from all your favourite podcast platforms, so please do subscribe. And also, if you like the program, do leave us a review. It helps others find the content. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.